All right, this morning let's take our Bibles and turn to the epistle of 1 Peter as we continue through this book. And now we're into September and uh, looking at another part of the year that uh, school starts up and, and different things take place. We're out of the summer, not, not quite yet, but uh, we are heading towards winter, all right? And everybody's excited about winter, I know that. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I thank you uh, for this opportunity uh, to just have the privilege to open up your word, uh, to see what it says, uh, to learn something that we didn't know before, or to add upon what we already do know. But I pray, Lord, that our hunger for the word of God would never wane. I pray, Lord, that we never get tired of hearing the gospel message. We never get tired of hearing preaching from the word of God. We never get tired of it, Lord, but it would always thrill our soul. It, always, it would always get a hold of us in our inner man, and just we desire to be fed by it. And so that inner man can be strengthened, and the old man could die off. And uh, I pray, Lord, as we go through our life, that we would be sinning less and less and that we would be looking forward to seeing you come again, uh, knowing, Lord, that you are coming. So I pray, Lord, that we would prepare for that coming. Even if it comes, there comes a time in our life that we have to go through deep times of suffering and persecution because we're believers. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be strengthened now before that time. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to be looking at just two verses today, actually just one verse. Um, 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verse number 6. I'll just read, uh, I'm going to read these passages, 6, 7, and 8. It says, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your care or anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, this morning, I'm going to look and focus in on verse number 8 specifically, but remember, this final section of 1 Peter, the apostle Peter exhorts his recipients, those who are, are receiving this letter, in three areas, the area of humility, which I looked at last week, this morning, the area of balanced vigilance, and then next time, we meet in the area of resistance, all three areas really have an important place within uh, the life of every believer. No one's exempt from these things, especially if and when, I would say when that a believer would experience some storms of trial and some suffering that they're going through in their life, that something that God wants to teach them, uh, a trying of your faith, remember, and then also 
a strengthening of your faith as you mature during those times of difficulty, which are the times that we mature the most. I have already covered the first exhortation. That exhortation of humility was given in light of God's constant care. So Christians are to cast all that creates anxiety on God and practice that every day, whether it be sizable or trivial. Anything that distracts us or prompts us to fear or worry is to be handed over to our caring God. Memories of the past, pressures of the present, fears concerning the future. However, such abandonment to God's care does not exempt the Christian from the duty of vigilance. The Christian has no warrant for slackness, for laziness. So the first exhortation is all important because that exhortation of humility, it enables us to carry out the second and the third exhortation. So this second exhortation that we're going to look at this morning is the exhortation of balanced vigilance. If you grasp the logic of this exhortation and practice it, stability and victory over Satan is achievable, all right, over his tactics. So this this first exhortation of that of being having balanced vigilance is so incredibly important because it's leading somewhere. I remember when I was uh, a, actually any soldier that uh, anybody who goes to battle a soldier doesn't just you know he, he goes to boot camp and he learns all these battle tactics he learns all these strategies he learns how to fire a weapon all right. You don't put somebody in a battle and then while they're, the battle's there, give them the weapon and give them the uh, strategy. You give them those things in peacetime, right? In times where before the battle, where they learn how to do all those things, they learn how to practice those things, they learn how to fire a weapon, they learn the nomenclature of that weapon. And so when they get into battle, they're not looking at the weapon and say, oh, how do you, how do you fire this thing? Or they're not looking at the enemy and say, oh, are they, our, are they our enemy? Or, you know, who is our enemy? And all those things, they know that beforehand. And so when we, when we think about that, if we switch that all over to the Christian life, it's the same thing in the Christian life. During times of peace, during times when things are, are kind of uh, on a lull and there's not a whole lot of things happening, that's the time to get strengthened in your faith. That's the time to learn what it means to be ready for a battle. Because a believer is to be ready for a battle. Uh, I don't think that's a message that's often heard today, but it is a message of the Bible. It is a message for all believers. And so as we consider this obligation is that uh, just as a soldier needs to be vigilant in what he knows in battle tactics and weaponry, a Christian ought to be vigilant in what they know about Christian battle tactics and what weapon do I actually use against the enemy and how to use that weapon. Because that's what it's going to come down to. So as we consider that, the exhortation of balanced vigilance, there is this first thing, and it's this, found in verse number 8. 
all right? It's that of being spiritually and mentally controlled. Notice what it says in verse number 8. It says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Now, those are very short, uh, pithy imperatives that means, listen, this is important for you. Don't miss this. It has something to do with being mentally controlled here, a be of sower spirit. Again, such relinquishment uh, to God's care in verse 7 does not permit any laziness on the part of the Christian. The command is not a new one in First Peter. Actually, he's summing up what he said in the first chapter. So if you just look over to the first chapter in verse number 13, he says this again, 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore gird your minds and for action keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then chapter 4 and verse number 7, it says the end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So again, three times he is admonishing by command to believers that this is really important. Don't miss this in your Christian walk because it's going to be vital for when the battle comes, that you're not going to be caught off guard. You're not going to be disillusioned. You're going to be ready. Actually, you're going to be expecting it because he already said that in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some th- strange thing were happening to you. Don't think it's strange when trouble comes into your Christian life. Don't think it's strange at all. But you should be ready for those times. So the imagery in, under this one right here is that of, of really drunkenness or a drunken person. It's the reverse of it, in other words, for it says keep sober in spirit. And that's what's going on here. So it's the image of a drunken person. And remember, a drunken person is not a person who is in control of themselves, their bodies, or their minds. They are instead given over to an outside intoxicating influence that controls them clouding and distracting their minds so that they are unable to maintain clear thinking. So when a person is under the influence of an intoxicating substance, their manner will be unnatural, and it will be erratic, depending depending on how much uh, of that influence they have had. And the reason why is because they allowed themselves to be controlled by something other than a sober and a sound mind. So by being under the influence, a person has removed his words and actions from his own power. These admonitions are also given in other books of the Bible. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 6, there's two verbs again that occur in this passage. It says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober, which are part of an eschatological passage, an end-time passage, and it's very probable, at least in Thessalonians, that the posture of alertness is part 
of a, the Christian teaching regarding the end of the world. The end of things are, are rapidly moving forward. We're not going backwards. We're going forward to a place. Remember, Christian history is not something that is, a, uh, is not something that's circular. It's linear. It's heading somewhere. It's got an end result to it. And that end result, we know, is the, the coming of Jesus Christ. We're preparing for his coming. And we know before that coming, there's going to be difficult times uh, that will come, and there's going to be difficult times in the heart, more in the heart of man than there is even today, where men are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money. They're not going to be lovers of God. They're going to be disobedient. They're going to be rebellious. All those things that are listed in Timothy about the heart of man at the, at the end in those Latter, latter days. We're, all, we're in the last days since the cross, but now we're in the latter, latter days, some 2,000 some years after the cross, and Christ has not come back yet. So what is the church to do in peaceful times? They're to make sure that they don't forget that he's coming and that they need to be of sober mind and be watchful and be ready for whatever happens. It was a man uh, in the theological um, translator's handbook who, who said this about the Thessalonian passage. He says, the notions of wakefulness and sobriety imply the need to avoid the opposite states of sleep and drunkenness. It does include literal drunkenness, but also anything that can dull the senses. Drunkenness expresses the clouding of the senses and so a lack of apprehending spiritual realities. So believers are to be alert, be on the watch like keen sentinels, aware that the foe may attack at any time and from any quarter. A good uh, observation on what uh, and a summation about what we ought to be doing as believers when it comes to having our minds, all right, not clouded by things, but clear-minded. The only thing that's going to give you a clear mind is the Word of God, because the Word of God is going to push out all the other stuff and give you God's thoughts on what God is doing in the world. All right, so that leads me to the second thing in the passage, and it's this. It's to be spiritually and mentally conscious. A little bit different than the first one. In, back in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, first of all, it says be sober, but it also says be on the alert. Right? The second imperative command means to keep awake, to be, don't be dull, don't be sleepy, don't be lazy, but be conscious of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. They are working against, uh, Satan is working against the kingdom of God. And so both of these, both of these imperatives put together teach that each, even though the Christian may cast the whole of his anxiety and burden on God, he is not exempt, again, for this duty of vigilance. Be on the alert can be rendered more satisfactorily be constantly ready. And of course, this one gives the image of that of the mind. And so we again, we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 13, 
And then, of course, this chapter, too, where it says in verse number 13 again that you and I are to prepare our minds for action, keeping sober in spirit. So it has to do with our mind, our upper housing group, I call it, right? The mind. The Bible, uh, it says to prepare the mind for action. The Bi- in Bible times, people wore flowing garments down through their ankle, ankles, still wore, uh, it's still worn in the Middle East even today. When they traveled or worked, they would bind up or gather up their flowing robes in their girdle or belt, and they did this so they would uh, not be hindered or slowed down by tripping over their extra flowing material if they, if they had to move quickly. It, it's like what it, what it says in um, Exodus where when the people were getting ready to leave Egypt and hurry out of Egypt, Uh, the land of bondage, this is how the scripture records it, now you shall eat in this manner with your loins girded, right? Again, that's how it's translated, the loins of your mind is girded. And of course, here, with sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. So to gird the mind means you don't move through life with loose thoughts that are lazily moved by old impulses and passions of your remaining corruption. Drifting this way and that way as occasions dictate. Instead, a girded mind means a mind that is made up. Not a stubborn mind, but a mind that is made up. A mind that purposely has decisive thoughts, makes decisive decisions, and knows the direction of their life. And of course, the only thing that could do that is that we, in other words, to have your mind made up is, is to have your mind made up concerning Scripture the authority of God's word, the sufficiency of God's word, that it is given to us, like Peter's going to say in his second epistle, it's given to us for all of life and godliness. We don't need anything else to prepare us in the Christian walk than the word of God. God is sufficiently giving us everything we need to prepare us. So we have a balance in our disposition, in our thoughts, in our actions, meaning that we're, we're never flighty spiritually or carried away by notions of our, our own uh, thoughts that cannot be substantiated or evaluated from anything but our own understanding, except uh, the Word of God is the only thing that can examine things. So th- there's a good ex- a scriptural example uh, noteworthy from Matthew chapter 16. You don't need to turn there. I have it on the screen here. But look what it says there. Peter questions the Lord's wise method of salvation. And Jesus was quick to remind Peter his thinking was out of balance, was not sober, and he was actually used by the enemy by the way he was thinking. Noted what it says. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Now, that's pretty clear, isn't it? That, it? that was his mission statement. That's why he came. Verse 22, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Look what Jesus says. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. The Lord quickly rebuked him for wrong thinking. And why is that? Because Peter wasn't seeing at this point that if it wasn't for Christ going to the cross and all those things happening to him, Peter could not be saved and be made right with God. Nobody could unless Jesus went to the cross. So he had not grasped the full implication of the mission of Jesus Christ at that point in the Gospels. But we see when we come to First and Second Peter that he has fully grasped it. And now he's turning around and warning the people of some of the things he got wrong. So we wouldn't get it wrong. So he was saying to us, listen, warfare demands vigilance. It demands sobriety. It demands watchfulness. Casting one's cares upon God not only shows a desire to be humble before God, but puts us in the realm in which Christians live with a freedom from all anxious care, enabling them to be sober-minded and have a mind guarded by the Word of God. A sober mind is really a calm mind. It's a steady mind. It's a, it's a sensible mind. It's a balanced mind, which weighs and estimates all things by the Word of God, which in turn enables the believer to make wise decisions, to avoid paths and different trends in the world and in life that will be damaging to their Christian life and growth. So a a spiritually balanced Christian can maintain self-control and spiritual sanity. And what does a spiritual sane person look like? Or what would be going on in their life? Well, they see things in their proper order and position or portion. They also see what things are important and what are not important. They are not swept away by sudden and passing enthusiasm. They are not prone to unbalanced fanaticism. They know in what and in whom they believe. They see the affairs of this life in the light of eternity. They have their eyes fixed on the goal. They give the Lord Jesus Christ proper place in all things. Their heart is fixed on God in prayer, casting all their worries on him while they live each day. So they have minds intoxicated with the forms and structures of this world. They know they know they, they who they are in Christ. They know where they are heading. They know what to do while on earth on their way to heaven. They know they're not home yet. A Christian is well aware 
reading the word of God that we are the true aliens and strangers, as he's been saying, and we are not home yet. And while we're not home yet, we have to have another thing to understand, that we are living in enemy territory. Wherever we go in this world, we are in enemy territory. And the reason why is because we're Christians. And if they hated Christ, they will hate us. All right? They don't have to have a reason to hate us, just to hate us. Because behind people hating other believers or Christians is Satan himself, manipulating and pulling the strings on things. Now, as we think about that, spiritual sobriety will be important for three specific, and actually for three specific purposes. The first one is found in chapter 4 and verse number 7. It says this, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. He gives it out there. In other words, seeking and knowing your caring God and casting all your anxiety on him. The second one found in the passage we're looking at right now in chapter 5, verse number 8, that of discernment being aware of your situation, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. That is discernment, that's another way of saying it. And then, of course, the one that I'm not going to look at this morning, but next time we meet in this passage, is that the purpose of resistance. Now, look at verse number 8. It says, why resistance? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So, see, Christians are not only aliens on this earth, but they, again, are occupying enemy territory. Therefore, we must be sober for the purpose of resisting the enemy. That's where he's heading with this. Now, before we go there, I really come to the real reason for all these imperatives, all these commands, and that is this, that warfare demands vigilance. That's what he's stressing in this passage of Scripture to us, to be vigilant for warfare. Why? Because, verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, which is right there in our text. Now, to be effective in spiritual battle, one must study the demons, They must study the demons themselves, albeit with caution. It was C.S. Lewis who said this when he wrote about demons. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors in which which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence, which they want to happen. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So Christians ought to know what to do in a spiritual battle, which means they cannot be ignorant about the devil and demons and about their character. And the only place you and I can find out about the character of 
the enemy is right in the Word of God. There's no other place on this planet that you can find out about what they're doing, what their character is, and what their mission is unless you read the Word of God. And the Word of God gives a clear understanding because, remember, Satan was a high-ranking angel who ministered around the throne of God and was finally thrown out of heaven. So God knows well because angels are created beings. They are powerful, but they are not any match for God. And remember, when we are God's children and we have we are the possession of God, Satan cannot just do anything he wants. He must have the permission of God to do anything in our lives. And so if you notice in verse number 8 of 1 Peter chapter 5, it begins to give us information about the enemy, right? It says he is an adversary. He's an adversary. That, that, that means he's an antagonist. He's a plaintiff, an opponent in, against you. Satan is really a diabolical one in terms where he carries, it carries the meaning of being an accuser. He accuses us. And in fact, it says there in our text, it says that he is your enemy, meaning this, that, that, that personal pronoun indicates the devil is your personal enemy. The one who personally works against and accuses believers. That's part of his mission is to go against you. He cannot get you because now you're in Christ. But he can come against you and accuse you of things, and he's good at it. He's really good at it. And unless we, are, we know the word of God and are not ignorant of the word of God, we are going to be duped by him. And Peter is saying, don't be. So there's nothing I know of that will make one so sober and serious-minded than spiritual warfare. And be sure of this, it includes trials and sufferings. Christians are to be sober and perpetually girded for action because Satan is battling for your mind. That's what he wants to get. He cannot get your soul, but he can get your mind. And so, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we see that there's several characteristics of the evil one, and it says in verse number 8, he's walking about. All right, it's pretty simple to understand that. That means he's continually and actively against you. He prowls around in verse number 8, and prowls means to, to move about and to conduct oneself. That Satan is not a not stationary. He's a, he's a, and he's not a passive opponent. He's always roaming around. He's walking up and down the earth, spying out the weaknesses of God's servants. That is, those who are careless, those who are world-influenced, those who are spiritually sleepy and not sober and not alert, those who are not alert or sober-minded or self-controlled, will be his target. So here's the warning to all of us. He has restless energy that is endless. 
Peter's description of Satan's roaming around may be reminiscent to what Job said in the book of Job. Remember when God said, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Look what it says in Job 1.7. It says, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. All right, of course, Job is an early book of the Bible, and since the cross, Satan's uh, activity and power has been seriously curtailed. He's awaiting judgment. So most of the stuff he's doing now is out of anger and a short time before Christ comes. See, the Christian must be sober and wakeful because his enemy is always active. What does the enemy want us to know about him? Nothing. That he's not there. That he's a little guy in a red suit with a pick, a pitchfork and a horns. You know, that we, you know, we, we uh, dress up, people dress up, not we, on Halloween. He's not that. He's not even a lot of, in a lot of stuff that movies portray him as. You know where he's at? He's in religion. He wants to get your mind, to twist your mind away from what the truth is about what God says in his word. So not only is he walking about, but a second thing it says here in our text is that he's a roaring lion. He's, he, he's like a roaring lion. Now can just consider a lion. A lion, when it is looking for its prey, is usually stalks it and then roars, but here the roaring, the devil is eager to do evil, inspired by his pride and hatred for God and all who belong to him. So he is not a silent hunter. Satan lets his fearsome roar sound forth. In other words, He wants to render his victims not only helpless, but helpless through fear. He wants to make people afraid. That's what he does. And like like the Hebrews tells us, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So in other words, the roar of Satan mentioned here in 1 Peter and Hebrews is, of course, likely the persecution. It has persecution in, in mind, and his original audience lived during the time of Nero's savage persecution of believers. And, of course, there is a fear tactic when it comes to suffering, when it comes to being in very dubious times, which you are the target. However, from Hebrews, Christ frees believers from the slavery of the fear of death. Why? Because he, through the cross, had victory over death. How is that victory seen? His resurrection. All those who will believe in him will also be raised to, uh, to a, with a new body and to live with Christ forever and ever. So he is a roaring lion seeking to make people afraid. He has many tactics to do that. And then, of course, there is the next one. He's seeking to devour. 
in verse number 8, that Satan is pictured here as being very ambitious, intent on totally capturing his prey. To devour means to swallow up or to drink down, to eat up. Daniel Arichia said uh, on this passage of Scripture, he said that in the present context, it refers to the activity of the devil in trying to destroy his believers, particularly their faith, and lead them into apostasy. That is, to deny their faith in Jesus Christ. Implied in, in all these is the thought that sufferings experienced by Christians are not simply the work of people, but are instigated by the devil himself. So behind all trouble and suffering and persecution, there are the fingerprints of Satan's all over it, in other words. He's trying to drive us away from what is true. He's trying to cloud our mind to make us afraid. Uh, But you know what? He cannot do that if you know the Word of God. You stand strong in the Word of God. So, in other words, that Satan does have a MO. All right? He has a modus operandi, a mode of operation, and here they are to keep unbelievers blind so that they do not understand or receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then to keep believers ignorant, sleepy, and scared so that through restless assaults and scare tactics and persecutions, the evil one hopes to cause believers to fall away from being soldiers and witnesses of Jesus Christ. So the devil's target in all this is the mind, and his weapon are lies disguised as truth. All right, The devil's target is the mind, and his weapons are lies disguised as truth. So he attacks the thought life by the power of suggestion and, of course, by the, by the subconscious mind man's fallen nature, the remaining corruption in believers. He uses all those things to get to someone. And above all, Satan wants to make people ignorant of God's word, the body of faith delivered once for all to the saints, just as Paul says in Corinthians, where he tells us this, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan identified in the verse, this verse as the God of the world supplies ample disillusionment for people to keep on believing lies. Now, in saying all that, God is sovereign all over all that. Because if he can get away with it, nobody would be saved. But you're saved, right? Those who know Christ this morning, all right, obviously, God overruled him. So he couldn't blind you to the place you didn't believe or didn't understand, but God overruled him and brought the gospel to shine in your heart so you repented of your sin, you saw your need of Jesus Christ, and you called on him 
to be your Lord and your Savior, and God says, anybody who comes unto me, I will no wise cast out, and you became a follower of Jesus Christ, and Satan was not happy about that day. He was not happy that you believed. And so he's even more angry that more, when more and more people believe, he gets more rambunctious, and he gets more uh, active in what he is doing. I think we see a lot of that activity in the world today where he is inflaming people in all places of the world. And so again, uh, as I mentioned already, the devil's target is the mind and his weapons are lies disguised as truth. So Satan guides the various thought patterns of the world in an effort to keep people in the dark about Christ, about his gospel, and of course to sanctify a process that this Holy Spirit is doing on believers. Now why does the adversary, why does the adversary take up such an aggressive posture against believers? Well, Satan enacts his deceptions for the sake of his own selfish pride. He wants to continue his dark dominion in the world. He is fighting against the kingdom of God. He's already lost, but he's still fighting. Satan attacks all who threaten that rule. God's people are hindrances to Satan's reign. So Satan contrives methods by which he may remove them, neutralize them, cause them to work on his behalf. He does those things. So Satan and his whole host of inferior spirits work to cause God's faithful ones to fall. That means that all servants of God will come under the direct or the indirect assaults of this formidable enemy. Satan's goal is to curtail the believer's usefulness and to ruin the believer's testimonies. So Satan tempts believers to sin and then to justify their sinful action. To be clear, Satan does not make people sin. But he does tempt people by drawing upon the various lusts present within them. Satan wants to ensnare people in their own lusts, their own passions and desires, and persuade them that their lusts uh, persuade them to greater wickedness, all the while making himself and his allurements appear to be right and helpful and desirable. In fact, If you remember this passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians, it says, No wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Of course, in the context there, it's talking about false apostles, false teachers. And so he is saying saying there that through many of the false teachers and false apostles in the world today, that Satan is disguised behind them, them seemingly being uh, preachers of light, but they are actually his emissaries doing his work in the world. So Satan's world system and 
all his temptations, in all those things, nothing is as it seems to be. Nothing. Now, just let me take a a few passages of Scripture as examples in which Satan will take advantage of someone. In each, each one of these passages, there's a direct reference to the enemy. Now, here's the first one, and the first passage is that of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 10 and 11. Now, in this passage of Scripture, we are, we are really to think of that we're not to be ignorant of his schemes because the enemies will attack the church community and its unity. He will do that, and he often does do that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, And then in verse 11 it says, So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, of course, really this is one man that was in the congregation in Corinthians who committed a sin. Paul told the people to put the man out. They weren't putting him out and disciplining him. They did do that. And then the congregation was called upon to forgive the man, and Paul is saying to them, listen, if you forgave them, I will forgive him also, all right? And why was he so intent on getting the congregation to be forgiving, getting the, 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 the community to be forgi- forgiven? Because if Satan can suggest ideas to the Christian's mind and inflame the believer's affections with desires that stand in opposition to godliness and opposition to holiness, in opposition to spiritual growth, then Christians, while taking the devil seriously, must understand what parts of their lives deserve special attentive caution. In this case, it was that of learning how to forgive. If you don't forgive, no matter what situation you may be in, you give advantage of the enemy. In other words, there is no grounds on this earth which you can justify yourself in not forgiving someone. If you look at the passage, it says at the end, why do we forgive? So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. What is his scheme? His scheme is simply this. You don't have to forgive. You're justified in what you're believing. It doesn't matter. You're right and that person's wrong. No. If you do that, you know what you do? You give him an advantage. Right? Why would I want to do that if I'm aware of God's word? Any, anyway, remember, I am to forgive because God forgave me of all my garbage and sin. Why? How could I withhold forgiveness from somebody else if if God has forgiven me all this stuff. So though though Christians do not know when the devil will strike, they can be ready for his attacks. 
Why? Because we're not ignorant of his schemes. Why wouldn't we be ignorant of his schemes? Because we know the Bible and we know theology. We're growing in theology, right? And this term scheme here is really the word that means his purpose, his plot, his design. So the, the, the device Satan was planting was the thought that Christians did not need to forgive each other. That's the plan. It's simple, isn't it? He appeals to our, our base nature. So the enemy really desires to introduce hatred and animosity into the church, into someone's actions in their life, which would in turn destroy the relationships in that church, and it would damage the church's organic unity and any further mission of bringing the gospel to the world in a congregation that people don't want to forgive themselves is shot. Because now you have infighting. And infighting, you have been trapped by the enemy. And how did he do that? He targeted the mind of someone and said, and he took advantage of them because they gave him advantage. And he, they became ignorant of what Satan was doing. So these mind attacks of the devil come very forcibly. Dr. Stephen Lawson, in his chapter, A Time to Stand, gives examples of the devil's devious suggestions. He says this, We kick around the devil's deception in our mind, convincing ourselves to bite the hook. So he pictures it as a fish looking at a hook with a nice juicy worm and it's dangling before us. And this is what he says. These, these are some of the things, things like these. God wouldn't want me to be unhappy, would he? Why fight the feeling? Everybody's doing it. This won't lead to anything else. It's always, I always wonder what it would be like. You fill in the blanks, of course. Just this once, and I'm never going to do it again. No big deal. No one will ever know. I can get away with it this time. This won't affect anyone but me. I can just confess it, and it will be like I never did it. You know what that is? That's presumptuous sin. That's the sin that David says, Lord, please keep me from presumptuous sin. Presuming that God would respond in a way when you do something opposite of what pleases him. Presumption. God will stop me if, it doesn't, if he doesn't want me to go any further. All the, the list can go on and on and on. But this is, this is how he just puts it in your mind to think these things. And the more we roll it over in our mind, the more deceived we become until eventually we go for it. We take the bait. We get hooked. And of course, you know what Satan does? He reels you in. That's what he does. And I'm not talking to unbelievers here. I'm talking to believers. This is about believers So Satan works on believers 
to get the better of them. The devil wants to destroy the power and the testimony of the church by putting stumbling blocks in believers' ways, keeping them ignorant of God's word, stifling their spiritual growth. So what are Christians to do when they're in a situation like that? Well, they are to do one thing. They're to resist him. I have no time for the other ones. I'll pick them up next time. But I want you to look back at chapter 5 and verse number 8. It says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And I didn't tell you what to do yet. But look at verse number 9. You'll get a sense of what it's going to be. But resist him. Firm in your faith, right? All right, that's what we're going to look at next time. And so you have to be here to finish what the scriptures teach us this morning. So let's pray. Lord, thank you today. Lord, the, the word of God is just so revealing. It, it, it so much exposes us, Lord, for where areas in which we really need to grow in. And if we look at our own life, Lord, there's a lot of things going on in our life where we have given advantage to the enemy. I pray, Lord, we stop doing that. And I pray, Lord, that as we would stop doing it because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we have the Word of God, and the, we can stand firm against him when we detect his lies and his traps and his manipulations. They're, they're simple because they're going against something God said to do or not to do, something that we ought to be and not be. So I pray, Lord, that you would make us wise and grounded in the word of God so the word of God transforms our mind so as the book of Romans says that we would, we would be growing in our knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ, and that we would grow to know the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. I pray that for us, that we would never let up, because truly, Lord, as we mature in Christ, we realize that we are in warfare, and God wants, we have a certain responsibility and vigilance in warfare, and I pray that we would not step down, but we would step up and be what God wants us to be. And I pray that you would enable us to do these things as we walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.